So it is our daily reality, the climate change. It is not about the gas in the atmospheres that we can con, but it is the real life that getting impacted. And welcome to What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. My guest this week is the environmental activist Hindu Omaru Ibrahim. From a Maboro pastoralist community in Chad, Hindu began advocating for indigenous rights and environmental protection at age 16. She is an expert in indigenous people's adaptation to climate change, traditional ecological knowledge, and climate change mitigation strategies. In 1999, she founded the Association for Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad, a community-based organisation that works to empower indigenous voices and ensure their inclusion on international platforms. As part of their work programme, the association is working with nomadic communities to better understand how traditional knowledge can contribute to efforts to address the climate crisis. They also recently introduced new income revenue activities for women and collaborative tools such as 3D participatory mapping to build sustainable ecosystems management and the reduction of nature-based resource conflicts. Hindu is also co-chair of the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change. She's a United Nations Sustainable Development Goal advocate and a Conservation International Senior Fellow. I caught up with Hindu from her home in Paris, where we talked about a range of issues, including what she thinks need to change so that the global response to climate change is shaped by Indigenous people, knowledge and decision-making processes. We also talked about the ways in which climate change is already affecting Hindus' own Maboru community in Chad. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Now, here's my conversation with Hindu Omaru Ibrahim. Hindu, thank you so much for joining us on what comes after, what comes next. I, you, I understand you got started as a climate activist when you were 16. Um, and I'm curious about, at that age, what it was that got you started. Sure. Uh, thank you, James, for this show. I'm so excited to talk to you and to all the New Zealand peoples. So I started actually before age of the 16, I started when I was a kid, because when you born as an indigenous person, you born already a activist for your people, for your environment. So, you know, I get very lucky because in my community is still to now and people do not go to school. But my mom fight for me and my sister to send us to school because she come in the city in certain time of her life. So when I went to the school, I got marginalized as a indigenous person coming from the bridge. So the kids saying like, oh, I'm coming from indigenous peoples. I'm smiling milk. They don't want to sit next to me. But while you're a kid, you cannot know what's going on. So I'm just like fighting with the kids to say, 
I'm going to be the best in the school and all. But I understood the fight that I'm doing in the primary school when I become a teenager because I got lucky to understand the two worlds from my communities who are excluded from all development and from those who are getting the chance but also excluding us. So I said, where is the, where is the place of the girls of my age? They must be very marginalized. And then I say, I have to fight for them rights. And immediately I understood, I cannot talk about human rights of a girls without talking about the community rights. And I figured out my communities, it is not only our human as person rights, but we have our environment with us that we depend from it and we live from it. And that's pushed me to fight for human rights, indigenous people rights and environment protections. And a bit far, then I saw people talking about the three Rio conventions, climate change, biodiversity, and desertification. I'm like, you do not know what you are talking about. It, it is just a wording, but I believe it. So that's how it started for me. Can you tell me, you know, when you say, you know, I live it, because, I, look, I agree with you. Most of the conversations that I'm part of end up being very abstract you know they're quite disconnected from people's day-to-day experience uh, and I think that one of the reasons why we're struggling to make progress on climate action around the world is because it's charts and it's graphs and it's you know parts per million of co2 in the atmosphere and so on and and we're not connecting enough with the experience of people like you. So what what was it that that you know you really felt was the moment when you kind of thought, hey, this is this is how all of this connects to my own experience. Uh, right. So you know, I am coming from the communities who are a pastoralist, a cattle helders. So my peoples, most of them is still to now nomadic, 100%, moving from one place to another one to find water and pastures. So my people can move up to 1,000 kilometers just to walking by the feet after the cattle, following the rain. So I give you the concrete example of how I feel it, the one around Lake Chad. You know, Lake Chad is one of the bigger fresh water around Africa, number five bigger. In 1960, when my mom get born, the water was about 25,000 kilometers square of the fresh water. And four years later, it was about 10,000. So from 25 to 10,000. And actually now it is about almost 2,000 kilometers square of water. So 90% of the water just evaporated, disappeared. So for us, it is a reality when we talk about the climate change, because we are seeing it in our environment change and we are seeing in a social life of the peoples. So environment change, the rain change a lot. 
the rent season used to be from the south to north from nine months to six months. But actually now it is from six to three months. So we lost almost three months of the rent. And it is not only the time that we lost, but the quality and the quantity of the rent that we lost. So it can come a very heavy rent with flood everywhere. And this is the case of the last year season. You can find it in all the newspapers, like the city of Chad, the city of uh, uh, in Jamena, or the Niame in Niger, or Khartoum in Sudan, or were under flood. People become homeless because of the big rent that we do not use to. And just the year before, it was like a big drought where there was no rain at all and people cannot plant them crops, they will be just drying up, drying up. That's why people can hear from the Sahel regions, there are a lot of food insecurity. It is not an issue that people cannot cultivate or there is no agriculture enough or whatever. It is the issue of changing season, so extreme that do not allow crops to grow up. And in my own peoples, it is impacting us because when there is not enough rain, there is not enough pastures. So it is our daily reality, the climate change. It is not about the gas in the atmospheres that we can come, but it is the real life that getting impacted. Scientifically, from 1999 to now, we have already plus 1.5 degree increase. And this is the Paris Agreement goals. We already out of the game. When we say by 10 years, we already impacted by 1.5 degree. And sad on it, all this environmental impact, I witnessed it. I saw how the herb, how the bears that I used to play with just like 20 years ago, that disappear. We do not see them anymore and disappear forever. And that can give the concrete example of the biodiversity report who say the world lost 60% of his species. It is not a number for me. It is a reality that I'm seeing. And I'm sure around all the world, we know some of the species that we know who just like disappear and we do not know why. And a new species coming up that we cannot know even the name. And at the same time, it's impact the life of the peoples. So in your work around um, indigenous rights and community rights, how do they intersect with environmentalism for you in your work? Yeah, so, you know, environmental peoples, it's those ones who went to school, who make them careers on uh, working on the environment, or the scientists who are uh, already like having the PhD or whatever. So for them, they wanted to see like the evidence, they wanted to make the uh, theory into a practice and then uh, make a statistic or whatever. So at the beginning, it was so hard to sit with them and to tell them about the reality that I'm living because they wanted to see the numbers and they wanted to see like, oh, wait, what is your area of expertise? Do you have like master degree on this or uh, PhD on that? 
So it's so funny for me to see them talking like that. So when I started, I start by telling them what they are putting as wording. For example, adaptation or mitigation. It is just a wording. What is the reality for me? It is what I'm living and I'm seeing. The loss of the rain, the uh, loss of the fertile land, the uh, degradation of the uh, environment that's going so fast and the human consequence that we are having. When they say loss and damage for us, it is a reality because people's losing their life because of the climate change. When there is no enough water, no enough pastures, the community fight each other. And that's what is happening in Burkina Faso, in Mali. And it's give space to the terrorist group to come and grab our land and terrorize peoples. So climate change, it is not about the number that they talk about it, but it is about the reality that we are experiencing. And then they start understanding saying like, well, this is the consequence of the climate change that we are seeing. When there is no enough rain, people will fight. And I start working with the meteorological scientists. I say, you need to see the reality before to give the information about how people can adapt. I take a meteorological expert in my community. Just I say, come there and see how we are working in the climate change daily. So when they come in my people, I say, make a friend and I give you interpreters because they do not speak our mother tongue. And immediately we are seeing that people are packing them staff. So for them, they say, are we moving? Because we are nomadic. We're like, no, we are not moving. It's going to rain. And they're like, oh, the sky is clear. It's not going to rain. And suddenly they was uh, sitting down the heavy rain start coming up. And we already pack, we already hide ourselves. We are seeing the scientists running to hide themselves under the trees because they didn't open them tap and whatever. So they get wet. At the end of the rain, so the serious discussions on collaboration start. They say, how do you know it's going to rain? Because from our knowledge, we do not see that. And then I told them that, we know from our grandmothers to our aunties, it is our daily life to observe the nature. We saw some of the ant, just like taking them eggs and same the needs. And we saw how the wind direction changed. We know it is going to rain in the next couple of hours. There is no other figure to see. And then they start just saying like, oh, well, maybe we have meteorological information but we missed to combine with the biological information. So it is time to see how you are just uh, projecting your knowledge, how you are seeing the climate impact and we can talk. So I start talking with the scientists, with the environmentalists by showing them the reality of my people. And we start having a serious workshop. That's why now when you see the chat my country national determined contribution paper have include the indigenous peoples have include the pastoralists the farmers and gender issues where they wanted to plan they have to talk to us uh, which is incredibly good news at one level i mean it's obviously bad news that it that it's necessary but that's a great step uh, that 
that you've been able to take. So that the scientists that you and the meteorologists that you brought to your community, are you saying that they were from they were people from Chad, or were they kind of part of the international? community so uh, it was for us the first step to make it at the national level so those scientists already witness the impact and then the knowledge by them eyes because those people used to sit in the office and work with the technology and technical issues they do not know how the nomadic peoples are living day-to-day climate impact so that's helped them to understand Peoples who never went to school, who do not have PhDs, but they are the expert of the nature. They have PhD plus plus and a different skill just by living in harmony with this nature. So when we start doing the first workshop, we invited the international communities to come and see how the scientists can also work with the communities because the climate change, it is not issue of expertise on one area. It is the issue of the cross-cutting. Like the Ministry of Economy cannot take the decision without consulting the Minister of Climate Change, as well as the Minister of Agriculture, as well as the Minister of even the interiors who are talking about the land or whatever. All of them depend from the Ministry of the Climate Change, who can give the guidance because he's the one who has, who can see the cross-cutting issues. So that's how the environmental scientists and how the, tech, uh, the uh, meteorological scientists who depend from the environment start opening the discussion with the cross-cutting ministries. And at that time, we say how we can connect it to the international level because all the decisions through the conventions are taken at the international level. So when we start giving the examples, we invite the people in the workshop. So the cross-cutting ministerial become cross-cutting multilateral to discuss with other peoples and get the right decisions that can include the peoples. And I'm so happy now to see in the climate change negotiation, they always involve the Ministry of Finance to come and discuss. I said like, yes, we started already at the national level. We have the commission who can put peoples in all the different background to come and discuss about the important climate talk. And uh, how do you feel it's going? I mean, you know, you've obviously had this success in Chad and, you know, you've got this document that says we've got to consult with or involve um, the indigenous people as, as we're making decisions. Uh, and if, you know, in terms of escalating that to the international scene, I have noticed just in the first sort of three or four years that I've been involved in those negotiations that the Indigenous Peoples Forum has gone from a kind of a really outside voice to louder, but I wouldn't yet say integral into the whole thing. What's your experience of it? Uh, Right. So, you know, uh, International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change started to do a strategy in 2008. 
So we come with all the seven regions having the global steering committee representing two, two from each region. That's those people are the focal point who rely the information from local to national to regional to the international level. So that's organization helped us when we come to Paris to better raise our voices. And we got for the first time after 20 years of the negotiations, the five references of indigenous peoples into the Paris agreements. And those are about our participations, our rights, the mostly about our knowledge. When you get the Article 7.5 of the Paris Agreement, that determines indigenous people's traditional knowledge are so valuable for climate adaptations. And when you take the decision 135, that create the platform of the local communities and indigenous peoples on the knowledge exchange about the capacity building, both for the countries and for indigenous peoples. And for the knowledge exchange, that how we can exchange our valuable knowledge and how we can change the policies and input into the policies. So far, yes, it is good. We raise our voices, but it is the international communities are making the space that we can take the decisions. This is the big questions for me. Is still when we say indigenous people protect 80% of the world biodiversity, that everyone is agree on it. So if we protect 80%, how much we are taking the decisions? Is still none. We are just like observer organization attending the negotiations. They want us to share our knowledge, but we cannot, if we do not take the decision in the tables, we cannot also just to give them our knowledge if they do not respect our rights. They need to recognize our rights to land, to our territories, to our resources, because our knowledge is linked to our territories. And one of the examples in my communities, uh, our seasons are based on our land and ecosystem. We can have seven to eight seasons and the scientific season are only like four. So how we can protect our land and mostly how the climate funding who have to accelerate the solution can reach out to indigenous peoples. There is no at all way to get the direct access to the funding. Even the developing countries like mine who never get the chance to the climate fund, how the indigenous communities can get the chance is still a big gap and big inequality on this climate fight. Mm. One of the things people often ask me is what can I do to make a difference? You know, and, and to kind of people who are going about their busy lives and, you know, paying off the house and looking after their kids and dealing with busy, stressful jobs. They want to be able to make a contribution and they they kind of don't know where to start. Uh, and the kind of experience that you're describing, of course, is huge, right? It's, as you say, it's kind of fundamental to the well-being and um and and kind of the continued existence of the culture uh and and so on and so when you're saying okay you know how do we connect to the solutions how do we um you know how do we ensure that indigenous people 
have the funding and the resources to be able to uh, to help kind of solve this thing. What does that look like? You know, how do we how how do we break that down for someone who is looking at this, going, you know, this is important. I want to help. Where do I start? Absolutely, I think everyone role in this climate fight it's very important, and everyone can help in his capacity and his way. For examples, uh, the peoples who are on individual way, they can help the climate movement by just changing them on mind, by just like seeing what they are eating, what they are buying. Are they accelerating deforestation? Are they protecting the nature? Are they turning out of the light or what they're drinking? Because when they do that, they must think about my people who still do not have access to the clean water to drink, who are still getting impacted. It is not about the people that surrounding you. It is the planet who is just the one for all of us that we are sharing. If I'm getting impacted today, what is happening? in the next coming years, because the season do not have frontiers, do not have passport. So thinking about those people who are impacted today and acting for himself. For the people who get organization from NGOs or from philanthropy or whatever, they can help by supporting indigenous people's movement. Indigenous peoples are organized around the world around the community. We are organized around our own governance. It is not the issue of getting associations or NGOs. It is the issue that communities are already organized since many years. How they can support them by directing funding to them. You know, most of the organization that limited us to access funding, they ask to write like a concept note for the project. You have the Excel uh, tables to just to make the accounting or whatever. So it's delayed process, how they can change this process to adapt it to the changing fast of the climate change. Even my grandmother who do not have the PhD, who cannot write or read, but she know how to protect her nature. Why not to just to create an adapted access funding for her? And then she can give the solution, she can deliver. Let us focus on how and what the peoples will deliver rather than how to do in, in the process that just to like imposing the things who are so unnecessary for us. How they can stop just to like uh, uh, the, the inequality. Funding indigenous peoples, it is also funding climate for the women, for the youth, because accessing is so different. Responses are so different. So how the funding can be directly to the women's activities, how we can link the traditional knowledge and the science knowledge. All what we want, it is the solution. So let us boost the solution by connecting technology and science knowledge and traditional knowledge all together. And that can help us fast the solutions. Government can play the role how they can translate what is happening at the international level. All our countries are so happy to sign and ratify the Paris Agreement, but how many of them turn it the national law that can respect to reach the 1.5 degree? It is a big work, yes, but politicians need to take a step forward radically 
to change the way how the economy are up, to change the housing, the energy transitions. They need to change the life that people are doing, depending from the market, how they are consuming, how they are also interacted on the shipping the issues, how they are boosted, how they can boost the national production in order to eat also local. So we can change the policies, but we have also to make it in a concrete way that impact the life of people. So everyone have the place to play, but let us come together in a partnership. This is the most important. And this is the SDG 17, partnership between private, public, indigenous, non-indigenous, working in the same objective for the next nine years. Now it's not 10 to reach our goal of reducing emission. I, I often, I'm a little weary uh, of um, always exhorting people to individual action uh, because of course we all um, make our choices in the context that we're operating in. Uh, and, and so for someone who wants to be able to make a difference, sometimes it isn't always an easy choice to make because you know the alternatives aren't available to me or they're way more expensive than the kind of cheap crappy option that pollutes the environment right now and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, what you were just saying then about the role that governments can play in helping to reshape those things, I think is really important because uh, that then enables uh, individuals and communities and businesses and so on to actually go, yes, actually we can see how we can, how we can contribute now. Um, uh, but, but without that, individual action is, is, is often very challenging. Uh, you know, for, for people to, to take. I, I'm really curious about, um, you know, the, I, I know that, I mean, you do a huge amount of work uh, at home, but I also know that you do a lot of work with uh, other um, indigenous climate movement organizations around the world as well. And you've got these quite deep and rich connections. What do you see in other countries that that's kind of similar to what you're doing or different from what you're doing that you think works? So, yeah, uh, indigenous peoples in the seven sociocultural regions, we have something in common. The, the commonality of us, it is all of us live and depend from nature. You can go to Sami in the Arctic, Iceland, or you can go to all the Pacific, New Zealand, to the Maori. You can go to Amazon, to forest peoples in Congo Basin, or to the savannas that we also share with Australia and, uh, uh, and uh, Aboriginals there in my communities, or the mountain. We all have the same thing. We are sharing, sharing that we live and depend from the nature. Our living in harmony with the nature. So this is the things when we come at the international level, we are all agree the most important issue, it's our land rights, our self-determinations, because we have our self-governance, we depend from this nature, we live in harmony with this nature. And we have all the duty, if we harm, tree or insect or birds, we are harming ourselves. 
So we already have the communality together in a original way of living since the centuries. And that's helped us to develop our wisdom together when we come at the international level that we need to fight for our rights. And if our rights are recognized, the rest can come in very easily way. You know, I give you the example in the Paris, when we come, we have four points focusing on need to negotiate, ask all the government to agree on it. The first point was the indigenous people rights to be respected and recognized that can help fast in the climate issues. The second was our full and effective participation, how we can participate in the decision making, how we can participate in the designing of the project or program, how we can participate in the implementations of all what is concerning the nature, because we can be a good advisor. We can be a wisdom to guide the people to take the right decisions. Because like in my community, when you wanted to take the decision, and it is the same in many other indigenous communities, you have to think about seven past generation and seven upcoming generation. So we have the long-term visions, but going by step. The third things we asked about how our knowledge can be so rich, important, and link it to our rights to be recognized and respected, and we can help to be a solution. We are not vulnerable. We become a vulnerable. So we are not only victim, we are also a solution. And then the four common issues we say, we cannot do that without having direct access to the funding and we can act together. So all those four commonality, we are shared among indigenous peoples around the seven regions. So let me give you one of the concrete examples. When people see my community in the Sahel regions, they say it is a very dry area because we are between desert and savannas, but we also have the tropical forest. So we are really in the door of each ecosystem. And when you go to the Sami land uh, in Arctic, they are in the glaciers, but in the Arctic, they have a ranger elders who is still a nomadic peoples in the Iceland. And in my peoples, you have my communities who are nomadic with the cutters. So we use both of us the huge amount of the land. We use the grazing system according to our seasons. And all this need a methodology and a strategy of adaptations over the season and over the time. So those, when we meet at the international level, we are sharing the same thing, even they cannot survive in more than 48 degree, and we cannot survive in minus 48 degree. So this is the most important part we are sharing. So the world externally can learn from this wisdom. Even we are not in the same country or same region, we are all depend from nature. As human beings, we need all the water to drink. We need all food to eat. We need all air to breathe. So this is the common thing with all the citizens of this planet, from the trees to the birds to the uh, human being. So why not we cannot come all together as indigenous people sharing the things, the rest of the peoples must understand we are sharing the resources of our planet, and that can make it more easy to act all together without barriers. 
I mean, as you're talking, uh, you, much of what you were saying reminds me of uh, things that are said by the Māori people uh, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and, I mean, very, very similar uh, sort of concepts. And one of the things that you said was about how, um, you know, if, if you if you hurt an insect, you're hurting yourself. You know, that there's that, that sort of uh, sense of connection there. And um, there are sayings... Uh, in Māori, uh, which translate as, I am the water and the water is me, or I am the river and the river is me, I am the mountain and the mountain is me, and, and so on, um, which are a way of, of, of sort of describing the oneness uh, of, um, you know, us as human beings and the environment that we live in and are, and are part of. Um, and some of those words and phrases are now starting to uh, join the New Zealand English language. So, um, you know, you kind of pick up bits and pieces that um, start to become used by um, non-Māori people as well because they can describe the world more effectively than the English language can um, uh, because, it you know, it has different concepts, right? And, of course, language really creates our reality in many ways you know how we see the world as a function of the of the language and, and the words that we use and so I'm uh, really interested in uh, some of the um, Mboru words uh, or, or languages that you use can you you know because I, I mean you and I have been talking in English right for the last 45 minutes um, but uh, I think that we lose something you know, because we're not using words that, that you would describe. So would that be okay to, to ask you to sort of, you know, say, well, what's a, a word or a phrase that describes that, that you could then translate back for me? Absolutely. I think what's happening in the Maori culture and identity, it's the same. I'm just like a smile from inside where you are saying that because I'm feeling it from my inside body oh my god it is the same peoples uh, I mean what's the Maori saying I'm a land I'm a mountain it is the same to me our language are so rich in my own language is fulfilled one thing you can describe in a seven word many of the issues that I cannot translate it in French that I went to school with or in Arabic that I grow up with. And yeah, in English is a, in another language for me. I cannot either imagine that I can translate it to it. So when we say Uroam, Leddiam, when we say Nagiam, so it sounds so poetic but it sounds so real for, for us. My peoples, who is Mbororo, we are called after our cattle, how we are really connected with our nature. So the cattle are called Mbororoji. And peoples come and call our people Mbororo-en. So that's mean it is not our cattle who take our names, but we name it after our cattle. So for us, it is not a meat 
or a milk or a bara when we see a cattle. It is our identity. It is who we are. And that's also why our cattle knows how to live in harmony with our nature. You know, when a nomadic person moves, it is not just like you watch your, uh, uh, your watch or your calendar and you say, first of January, we move from south to north. Second of January, we move from, no, it's not working like that. Our cattle feel it when the rent season is coming the cattle lying down and that's people can see them from them eyes when they lie down they do not put them head in the land they have them head up they have the noise facing the south you can do anything you can beat them you can do anything that you want they will never face north or east they will face south they head up and snoring the reason for that they are smiling nature they are smiling the rain season that from hundred and thousand of kilometers there and that means you have to move and when we start moving, it is not that you work and your cattle are behind you. The cattle work and you follow them. So all this you cannot describe in the French or English or Arabic. You know that only because you are living with, you are growing up with. And it is the same when it is, the season is ending. You can find the cattle that just like checking them airing and you hear a noisy, it's like a music around. We call it nopinagi. This, I cannot, I can never translate it, how it's doing or the sound or all. So our language are linked to our land, to our territories, to our way of living, to the ecosystem that we depend on it. And that's also why, like for us, our season are also ecosystemic best. The scientific season can say they have winter, uh, they have summer, they have spring, uh, uh, they have autumn. But in my community, you come around Lake Chad, they define we have six seasons. They go in the south, we have seven seasons. And each season are coming with a, a specific knowledge of the nature from the flowers of the trees to the wind directions. From that, we know exactly to the cloud movement and to the start positions. Even there are millions of the start in the sky, but we follow those stars who are coming in the exact time of the night and who are ending on the exact time of the night who can help us to define the season. And that's also one of the commonality I remember now we have with the Maori, because Maori is observe also the sky from the uh, star. So this astrological traditional knowledge, we are sharing it together. If people can move in the ocean by observing just to the position of the star, we as nomadic also, we are using the position of the star to move during the night over the desert or the savannas. And all this exists only in our traditional 
in our mother tongue. And this is how it is so important to connect the knowledge, the language, and the nature. And again, I'm finding myself then trying to connect how we um, how how we can usefully uh, do as you were describing earlier in our conversation of uh, of connecting that indigenous knowledge uh, with the solutions to climate change with this vastly complex and very bureaucratic international system uh, that we have, which is tremendously frustrating. <laughs> for um, I think virtually everybody involved um, and and that to me feels like a really hard I mean there's a lot about climate change that's hard to solve but but how how, how you do that I, I I'm what one of the things that's happening here in Aotearoa New Zealand is uh, there's a, a group that's been set up called Ihirangi which is a Māori run uh, organization that's uh, connecting different um, iwi and hapu tribal groupings uh, with th- essentially the government and trying to say, well, the government obviously creates these big top-down plans and processes and you know does what governments do, and Ihirangi is developing this sort of bottom-up, uh, you know, very organic system. And what we're trying to do is to connect those two together so that we can have a plan that uh, for the you know for the country and how we adapt to the effects of climate change and how we uh, help to reduce our emissions over uh, over the coming years but to do so in a way that is is connected it's really difficult to do even in a fairly small country like New Zealand you know we when governments aren't designed well to deal with that so you try and apply that to the international system uh, seems um, pretty tough call uh, so how how do you do that in your head? How do we make that happen? Yeah, I know it is seems difficult, but it is a process. So if you take it as process, it will be much easier. And it is also how understanding to work with indigenous peoples, because you cannot just like come and set up a workshop and invite and organizations to come and sit down and talk the same language and then say like, okay, we make first step, let's move. So it's not working like that. The way of working with indigenous peoples, it's very particular. It's have to go through process of the protocol of each community. For example, in my community, our protocol is not the same than when you go to my sister Kera, who is Maori of New Zealand's community. So when you wanted to work with my people, even myself, if I wanted to go to my community, when I step my feet in my land, I have to go firstly to the community chief, greeting them, sitting with them, before to move to the elder women, before to move to the rest of the community. So this is, I am from there. So the other peoples who wanted to work with the indigenous communities, they must understand the protocol of each community, how they can start working with them. Are they have to talk with the woman first or with the man first or with the community chief first 
or if they use facts, are they going for them by themselves as just like government going to talk with the peoples or they have to set up the process talking with the organization that representing those communities. So understanding the way of working of the communities, this is the first step who must be set up. And it is different from one community to another one. It is not the same at all. And when you achieve this one, you have to also understand which kind of discussions who will be start with. You cannot just start talking about uh, just like laws or how we can change this or how we can take that. The people make the priorities differently. In indigenous communities, everything is interlinkages. You cannot have like biodiversity land separately, climate change separately, desertification separately, health separately, education separately, water separately. Everything is interlinked. So how you can put the priorities of discussing of, about all those interlinked issues. So how you can talk about the importance of the education with the importance of the health. And that can end up by saying, okay, it's helped us to protect our land. So the way of interconnecting the subject is very important for indigenous communities in each place that they are, they are there. And secondly, how you can also have the intersectorial discussions. The scientists, the academia, the governments, indigenous, all together. So how you can have these different discussions coming together. I remember when I started discussing with academia and scientists, they say like, oh, your knowledge are very important. And um, I swear to you, those people are from the IPCC, the expert group on climate change, saying it's really very important, but your knowledge need to be validated by the scientists. So why not like a uh, one of the scientists come to the communities to discuss with you to validate the knowledge? And this is the things who do not work with indigenous peoples at all. I just like to say, who are you to validate my knowledge of thousands of years? You went to the school to get your PhD. Maybe you studied 20 years or 30 years. Or maybe you come in one of the communities and you write the PhD, not because you just write a book, call it PhD, that you are expert, you have to validate the knowledge of my grandmother who grew up on it since hundreds of years, thousands of years. So how we can build the trust, this is the work how you can build the trust between the different sectors and how they can understand that those knowledge are very old for thousands of years of observation. Even they are oral, they are very valuable because they help our community to build the resilience. Even with the climate change impact, we are still resilient in our land. We are still living in harmony. We are still founding the food, founding the water even if there is a hurricane that hitting an island in New Zealand, the grandmother and grandfather knows where they can get a fresh water or where they can get a food. So those knowledge are so valuable. If all the government, all those sectors recognize the valuable of the knowledge, the valuable of the role of indigenous peoples. So they build the confidence and they can start the discussions. So you have to go through all this process and especially implement the free, pure, and informed consent. See, the consent, it's not meaning information. It's meaning 
a consent man of saying no or saying yes. If the community wants to discuss about something, they can say yes, and it is the entire communities. Yes, you can discuss. If they say no, so you have just like to understand it is not the time, the time of discussing. It's not yet come. You need to pass through another step before maybe it's come later. So that can help to really collaborate in a smooth way between the different actors. I, I'm uh, finding this conversation um, in many ways full of hope, uh, which, you know, as you well know, climate change conversations can often be quite bleak, um, you know, when you're kind of dealing with kind of the state of things. Um, what What's... What's your sense uh, of the situation at the moment, you know, around the world? Like, do you do you see that there's progress? Uh, do you have a sense of hope? Um, what, what's your what's your read of of where things are at right now? I think the situation is very critical. The climate situation is really critical. We are seeing what is happening around all of the world. When we see the fire around your regions in Australia, when you see the fire in Amazon, there are thousands of fires in Congo basins. When you see the flood around the Sahel regions, who used to be a dry area, and when you see all the sea rising, that the peoples in um, uh, Pacific have to move communities between islands to settle peoples. The situation is really critical. When you see what's happening when the terrorist group as Boko Haram taking the opportunity of the poverty that adding because of the climate change, terrorizing peoples, creating a new the world insecurity around our species, it's very critical. For me, there is no urgent moment than now. And in addition, we have the COVID crisis. We have the economic crisis that impacting the climate very badly. When the COVID come in my community, we are transbondering. When they close the frontiers, we cannot move the cattle across the border the impact become more huge because there is not enough water and pastures for all the cattle. Cattle start dying, communities start fighting, killing each other. So it is really a very urgent time now that we have around the world. The response will be an urgent that can be accord to what's happening. And we know from also scientists saying we have 10 years, but now we have nine years because by 2030, if we do not reach the 1.5 degree for all the rest of the humanity, we are going to turn to the bottom of no reverse. No reverse means the extreme weather events will become our new reality around all the world. But it is already our reality in the Sahel, the extreme, extreme weather events. We cannot do that at all. We cannot forget our, forgive ourselves to turn this button of no reverse. 
So we got an opportunity now to act. And this opportunity, it is this year. This year, it's so particular and so important. 2021, it is the one year after the Rio in 1992 to become the first years who will have the three Rio conventions together the COPs, the climate change COPs, the desertification COPs, the biodiversity COPs going to happen this year. In addition to the food summit, we all having a big opportunity, but we, all, we are all in a very critical time. Are we ready to act? Are we ready to act fast? It is the international community can go beyond all the lockdown, wearing the mask, and then act fast for the climate because we cannot wear the mask for the climate change. No. We cannot lock the frontiers for the climate change. No. All what we need, we need to act in a very fast way, accelerating all the solution we have. How we can shift from the all the fossil to the renewable energy. Are we ready to stop all the fossil to leave it in the ground, to stop the mining of the coal, to shifting to the renewable energy? We do show the world that we can do it because if with the COVID over, over the night, the world changed radically, setting all the measures, Everyone now in the rural area or develop or developing country, we know that wearing the mask is important, washing the hand is important. And we know government come with the new idea, boosting the economy by putting money around all the sectors. They can do that for the climate change. They must do that for the climate change. How they can change radically by shifting the economy from the private sector that doing they not clean energy to go to the cleaner one. How they can, the development bank, the 400 development bank around the world can stop funding the fossil, stop deforestation and moving to the sustainability, implementing the sustainable development goals. How they can share the richness among the peoples. How we can boost the economy from all what we are doing today, funding climate solutions, how they can fund the indigenous solutions. Are all the development bank, all the financial sector ready to commit to 1 billion for indigenous people's solutions, direct access funding? We are not asking for new money. We are asking for the existing mechanism to change the way of funding for indigenous peoples, are they ready to do that? So I think we have more cautions than the response, but we have a big opportunity this year. We must act and government must show the peoples it is not only the election voice that count, it is the future of them children, of them grandchildren, it is the future of them countries that count. It is not the voices to make them president or to make them whatever that count. They must change the life of the peoples. This private sectors must think about there is no sustainable business without a healthy environment. And there is no sustainable health without a healthy environment also. So are they ready to shift all to go to the 
renewable energy to go to the forest recovery. It is the multilateral system from the UN to the big NGOs are ready to change the way that they are taking the decision to open the place that indigenous peoples can see to be the gender sensitive, having the women who are the half of the world population to sit in the tables, take the decisions. Climate, it is a humanity issue. We must all share in the equitable way the decision we are taking and all invest on it. So we have the challenge of nine years but the action must be now, starting now. We cannot wait anymore. And I think it is the issue of survival or death of my people and many other indigenous peoples. Our life is in the hand of those who are taking the decision. I hope that they will take the right decision and they will let our peoples survive, not die. Hindu, that's a very uh, powerful um, place, I think, to uh, complete our conversation um, and a really important message, I think, that you're, that you're leaving with us there. I want to thank you again uh, so much for your time and for the generosity of spirit uh, that you've shown in uh, being with us uh, and kind of sharing your experiences um, and, and insights into uh, how... Um, we can navigate through the kind of challenge that's in front of all of us uh, through the lens of the indigenous peoples of the world. So thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the voice. Thank you for giving all indigenous peoples voice across what we are all standing for. Thank you for this podcast and thank you for all the auditor. I hope that they will take something and save our planet. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to Hindu Omaru Ibrahim for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next time, we will turn to the role of fiction in efforts to address climate change with the best selling author, Barbara Kingsolver. See you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.